Welcome to Matthew's World of Wine and Drink, an educational podcast dedicated to teaching you all about the wines of the world, the different grape varieties, the different regions, and the history and culture of wine. So I'm here with uh, Michael Terrian of Obsidian Ridge, and he's here to talk about um, his wines and um, Lake County as well, and just um, why Lake County is a little bit different from Napa Valley and why it's a really interesting growing region which people are looking at more and more than they used to. But first of all, Michael, can you just introduce yourself? Thank you, Matthew. Good to be here. Uh, My name is Michael Terrian, and I came into the wine industry after UC Davis uh, in 1996-7. Worked at Acacia for a decade, worked at Hansel for another four or five, six years. Along the way there was working with my friends, Peter and Arpad Molnar. We began a project in Carneros with Pinot Noir from their family's vineyard and then planted Obsidian Ridge up there in Lake County in 98, 99. Uh, first vintage was 2002. So we, um, we've we been nurturing that one all along. And uh, I've, you know, when we got started, I didn't really know anything about winemaking and um, more or less built from there, hopefully somewhat successfully. Tell us about Lake County in general for those who, listeners who aren't from California. Lake County don't know California is just north of Napa. Well. It's also very County? far away. It, despite that it's uh, the next county up, it does take a while to get there uh, as the road around Mount St. Helena uh, is windy and uh, you gain altitude. It feels like another world. You you enter this alpine ecosystem, the, the silver pines and the manzanita and this the sense of, of distance and uh, specialness. It's like a Narnia to, uh, to Napa. It's the Mayacamas range, just the northern extent of the Mayacamas range. So you've got similar characteristics along that ridge line, but um, there's, of course, great diversity to the county uh, and the soils and the, and, the, and the places that grapes are planted, as well as pears and walnuts, which are the historic crops of the county. Yeah, and Lake County has um, quite a history of great... It also has a wonderful history with um, uh, can you tell us the Bay Area that? wealthy uh, retiring there in the summertime, uh, arriving in Lake County by... Uh, ferry from San Francisco to Vallejo and then train up to the stagecoach in Calistoga and up and over Mount St. Helena and then back back down into uh, the valley to Clear Lake, which is the largest lake in California entirely within the borders of California. Of course, Lake Tahoe being larger, but uh, uh, crossing the border into Nevada. Um, You would then board a ferry there and go to your your place of retreat in the summer in, in in uh, in Lake County, that history is long gone, and it's a it's a county with very little in the industry, and so a depressed economy. Uh, and when we arrived there in the late '90s with this aspiration to plant a Cabernet vineyard, it was with a sense that there was uh, um, much to be discovered, and not only not have an idea of whether Cabernet would work out well where we planted it, but um, whether the market would accept a Cabernet from uh, Lake County. Of course, there were earlier efforts in that region that were successful, steel winery being the one that comes foremost to mind from Jackson. 
the new wave, if you could call it, where we were part of, uh, was ambitious and sensing that there was more, more in the elevations to come. And um, boy, man, just to stand in that, in that walnut orchard up there uh, that had been planted some 50 years before, but the trees were really bonsai wal walnut trees. They hadn't been irrigated. And, and if you know anything about Obsidian Ridge, it's a pile of gravel, a pile of obsidian gravel. There's just very little organic matter to the soil and water retention is, 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 well, there is no water retention, the water, the rains drain right down through it. So it's, um, you need to irrigate and walnuts, uh, walnut trees that were not irrigated did not grow much over 50 years. That business did not succeed. It was called nuts incorporated. I joke you not. And it was, um, it was, it seemed like the great place to grow Cabernet, but we didn't really know. And so our first vintages of, of, um, and you probably tasted some of the earlier ones I imagine back in 2002 was our first and that one, that one still is not coming around due to the tannin and the structure of it. Uh, Furthermore, I had been a Pinot Noir winemaker and was more um, accustomed to trying to encourage development of tannin, extraction of tannin. Did not need to do that for that vineyard. Right, that's part of the learning curve, isn't it? As you as you work with the land and realize what you need to do and what you don't need to do. One of the things I like about Lake County is how literal the names are. It has a big lake, so it's called Lake County, and the lake is called Clear Lake because it's very clear. That's a good point. And then it was pretty obvious that we had to call it Obsidian Ridge. Well. It is a ridge, and there is obsidian. In fact, you were, you would be hard pressed not to um, land anywhere within that vineyard and, and be able to reach obsidian. It's it's just everywhere. It's shot through. Whether it's size of VW bugs or BBs, it's everywhere. And obsidian is interesting because it's chemically equivalent to um, basalt and granite. It just has emerged onto the surface as molten rock and cooled rapidly without pressure. Uh, and that is what allows it to develop that glassy look. And mostly it's black, but there's green and there's other interesting colors in, inter, intermixed with it. But it's not, a, it's not, as I say, it's not, a, um, it's not an easy place to farm, uh, but certainly developing the vineyard was tough uh, tractor tires are, are short-lived <laughs> as they as they get sliced up by the sharp edges of the of the obsidian. Interesting, this obsidian is not what you think of as um, good for arrows. It was used as a sort of a scraping knife for pelts um, and other uses, uh, but doesn't fracture in the way that allows it to make a fine tipped point of an arrow. But I believe uh, there's been accounts of it through carbon identification of these blanks being traded all the way back um, past the Mississippi. It has a, a far, um, far range and utility among the first people. It is an incredibly sharp and shiny rock. I remember um, meeting you at Backroom Wines in Napa and you had a bag of rocks with you and you showed us the obsidian and it was incredibly distinct because it's just so shiny and so sharp. Not the kind of rock that I'd plant uh, vines in. So what I made think you that really reflects more the nature rock, of that, um, Peter and Arpad and um, Niklo Molnar and their pursuit of a property that wasn't in an effort to replicate something already accomplished. Napa, of course, well established as a reputate with a reputation of quality wines, and um, and real estate prices go along with that. The adventurous spirit that I think runs through 
each of us, and I can trace it, although I'm not a Molnarian, there's a sense of we've come together because we have this, I wouldn't say it's like we're trying to be contrary, although I've been accused of that now and then. It's, it's, it's like, why do something that someone else has done? And Miklos Molnar arrived in America from Hungary uh, as in 56 at that time of the revolution in, in defiance of communist uh, regime. And so he, he had that spirit in him that brought him here as many debtors did as well. And then to come to Napa at a time when there wasn't really a lot of reason to believe in vineyards in Carneros, at least buy a hundred acres of sheep uh, grazing land and, um, and then plant Chardonnay, which um, at the time it was thought would not be successful uh, in, in ripening. But of course, that history had to be written and he was part of that. So that follows along with uh, Peter and Arpad, the next generation, and, and heading on up to a new area. Um, not new, but unexploited, unexperimented um, with. And we had that spirit. We had that desire to try something else out. Right, so Obsidian Ridge is located just north of Napa Valley. And what are the differences between that vineyard in the heat of summer, and let's say August, northern Napa um, Valley September, and Calistoga? Uh, you head north from Carneros on 29 and then swat, switch over to the east side on Silverado Trail. And as you keep heading on up north through Yontville, St. Helena, Calistoga, it gets warmer and warmer and warmer. And of course, the varietals that are planted from south to north reflect that uh, Chardonnay and Pinot Noir in the south. And, and the Cabernet and, and used to be other varietals, uh, Italians and Zinfandels, but that's all, you know, really dominated now by Cabernet. It warms up as you gain a little bit of elevation in the northern um, ends of the valley, but it's really that effect of the, the airflow from the San Pablo Bay and the Golden Gate and the fogs that sweep up there in the middle of the night and then drain back down in the late morning. And of course, it uh, takes longer for those fogs to reach up to Calistoga, if at all. It probably ends more like Yonfield to St. Helena, and then it warms up quicker uh, in the afternoon. So it gets warmer in Calistoga, and you feel that if you're headed up to uh, higher elevations there in Red Hills and City and Ridge, you pass up and over 22,000 feet, 2,600 feet is the top of Obsidian Ridge, now 3,000 feet with our new planting, and you get the marine influence coming west across um, um, well, Sonoma County and Mendocino uh, County, um, you can feel the breezes coming in from that higher elevation from the coast and it cools it off up there. So you're warmer in Calistoga than you are at the top of um, City and Ridge, in, invariably five, 10 degrees. When it's 100 degrees, it's 90 degrees. It's, uh, it's a quite striking difference. It's dry, it's very dry and very influenced by the ultraviolet being a little bit higher. Uh, you wouldn't think it adds much, but it does. It, it took some time to, for us to figure out that the VSP, a vertical shoot position vine, really was um, not beneficial to the quality of the wine we made due to the exposure of the fruit from the slopes and angle of uh, elevation of the vineyard. Fortunately, we planted on the north and east facing slopes of, of that ridge. It, it would have been more difficult if we were on the west or south. So there's lots of um, different elements going on there. Elevation seems to be the key element which links all of them together. So for exposure to sun, but also exposure to ocean. Flock of seagulls. So what <laughs> we, we do have it 
set up for the potential for VSP. We have the wires there, but uh, make little use of the wires, at least on the uh, on the um, exposed side of the of the vine. So it ends up being a pretty lazy VSP, and by that I mean the cane the it's cordon trained and the canes grow up but then are allowed to drape over and um and do do service to the fruit shading uh, allowing dappled sunlight in but there's been a couple of improvements over the years that since those early vintages of extremely tannic wines that i just tasted the 04 with um with our crew a couple days ago and um that unfortunately was under noma cork uh which didn't keep it alive or keep the details alive but the structure is very much there and won't won't recede <laughs> and then when alex bellows came in as i moved to hanzel and was full-time there alex became our winemaker in 07 really reflects uh, uh a, a sensitivity to the tenants of that uh, site and then peter and alex and i and our pod really worked on how to mitigate that tannin and in the vineyard, not just by reducing extraction time in, in the tank, but by digging more wells and uh, judiciously applying water, never um, allowing the vines to undergo the stresses that they felt in their first several years. And young vines are always overachievers. They strive and they tend to produce uh, a lot of power that's beyond what they should be doing. Uh, so as the, as the vines became more mature into the 12, 13, 14 vintages, you see this smoothing out of the tannins and rounding out of, but the fact is we're not Napa Valley and we're, we're, we're not ashamed to say we're our own thing. Uh, I think earlier on we would, I would find myself in the marketplace saying, we're just like Napa, but cheaper. And that's not really a good marketing story. You probably heard me say that in the backroom wines, but, but we just became more comfortable in what we've got there. And it's not the same, it's different. It's high elevation, rugged mountain structural fruit that, that has a different expression. It's wild. And it has this character that is in, undeniably associated with that difficult soil or lack there of the obsidian. But also again, going back to the Garig like manzanita the heat those those oils that are in the silver pines and just the the wonderful flavor of place it comes through in that in that vineyard so you're talking about the difficulty of the soil and that irrigation is necessary so how do you irrigate in what is um, a very dry climate that can be that uh, where drought can be an issue so you mentioned judicious irrigation can you uh, elaborate on that yeah, I, maybe judicious is not quite the right word, but thoughtful. And, you know, you'll hear people talk about a longer set and with uh, extended intervals between the set, the irrigation sets in order, order to encourage those roots to reach down deeper. And um, there's no challenge to the roots reaching deeper in the soil. You, without much effort, can dig with a shovel, get through the gravel and keep on going for another dozen feet, 18 feet of essentially riverbed gravel stuff that you might see at your garden supply store it's it's in some locations of it of the vineyard it is it is really loose and it is does again it does not have that organic matter packed in there and it's not like it's you know franciscan sandstone which a lot of the coastal range is all about um this is this is just tossed up young volcanics and i think mount canocti is ten thousand years overdue for an explosion uh, eruption I think it's every 30 or 40,000 years and we're, we're past that by some time. So it's an active volcano. It's just 
you know, we're waiting for it to go. But that this means that that soil, that material there, the youngest material there is, is only 10,000 years old, or roughly it's been churned up from, from flows. And boy, it just doesn't have much to go on and the roots can get down there easily. That means there's no real benefit to doing a, a, long, a longer set with um, greater interval. You have to keep going um, every, every day or every other day uh, in smaller amounts. That's the way it works up there. We've learned it the hard way. And are you using drip irrigation? Oh yeah, definitely drip irrigation. You, you, occasionally, people you know sort of chide us for like, well, the only great wines come from dry farming. And well, if you dry farm more than a week or two in late August, you'll have dead vines up there. And it, there's uh, there's this sense that you're you're during the rainy season watching this water instead of running off and eroding the soil it just goes straight down it's a you know it's this pile of gravel and you'd have to have more than a couple inches an hour for it to actually run off the slope it just goes straight into the soil and we like to think of it as simply returning what has come down in the rain back up and it um and uh, you know for sure much of it returns back into into the deeper soils i mean look we don't even have to deal with with uh, any any weed control there, it doesn't support weeds. Uh, we spray maybe three four times a year compared to maybe a dozen times down in southern Napa. Um, the dry dry conditions up there are extraordinary, um, and it's it's on the it's on the fringe. It's really on the perimeter of what's possible, um, and then. We suffer from that, obviously, in fire seasons now. It's a regular thing. In 17, we didn't make a vintage. And um, sorry, in 18 and 20, through two out of the last three years, we, we made compost instead of wine. And um, that's, that's definitely informed the way we think about our business. Um, we, we made a lot of wine in 2019, more than we'd be able to sell in one year, but it was a it was prescient because we had another terrible season and could not make good wine in 2020. So we have two years worth of wine in the cellar, which are just bottling up actually started yesterday. Uh, and that will last us two years now. And we pray for uh, a year, which doesn't bring us smoke taint uh, in 2021. Um, it's challenges of farming on the edge as we're all experiencing now. And so how did you analyze the grapes or the fruit from 2018 and 2020 to conclude that that wasn't sufficient quality to actually make wine from them? Or was it just, there's a lot of smoke, so not doing this? Uh, you know, I wish we could simply say, yeah, there's a lot of smoke, we're not doing this. But of course, we need to apply some rigorous um, analysis to it. And Peter's been on the forefront of that and was so back in 2015, when the fire that started in Cobb Mountain burned south east through Kelsey, uh, through Middletown, that one only lightly affected us. There was the smoke smirkling, circling back around and, and, and um, inverting and staying with us for a while. So we can, we can taste some smoke in the 15 vintage. It's by no means a disqualifier for quality, but you can see it's there when you're comparing it to 14 um, and 16. And that's kind of interesting. I don't mind that as, a, as, again, as wine tells the story of place and time, transports you to that moment in that uh, summer of 2015. And um, it reflects that, honestly. 2008, the Mendocino fires, oof, we shouldn't have made a wine that year. 
it was um, it was tough selling, and people weren't accustomed to smoke taint as an issue in California at that point. Um, I think Australia was beginning to get some experience there, but we uh, didn't know any better, and we were also much smaller back then. I think we made it seven thousand cases versus thirty thousand cases last year, two years ago. It's clear that if we tried to pull that off with the 2020 vintage, we would have uh, ruined the company, ruined the reputation for quality that we've worked so hard to build up from this extraordinary place that, you know, it was a risk to plant in the first place, um, not knowing whether it would be able to turn, put out more than, you know, a ton or two of per acre and it can do a sustainable three to four tons, which makes it an economically possible proposition for 30 plus dollar wine. Um, but boy, that 2008 is still, I mean, it's interesting to taste because it goes between Slim Jims and Ashtray and perfectly happy, delicious wine, <laughs> but it, you catch it at the wrong moment. It gets angry at you. And so when you analyze the wine, how do you detect smoke taint? AWRI, Australia Wine Research Institute has been, um, at the forefront of that for us in 2018, we availed ourselves primarily of their services. So shipping off grapes or, or mashed up uh, grapes, and then also uh, test wines and learning from that. And of course, ETS in St. Helena has, has advanced the science domestically for um, in a different method, but we are able to correlate the two and see what our benchmarks are for tolerability. And of course, using the the wisdom of all the other winemakers who are attending to this, which at this point is everybody, but two, three years ago, it wasn't. It was, it was still, I think, a bit of head in this ostrich winemaking, but uh, head in the sand sort of, this isn't really going to be a serious thing for us. And now we know it's serious and it's going to be um, uh, imperative uh, that we understand it better. That being said, we still don't have a handle on it. It's still elusive uh, to understand why the smoke that came from 300 miles away, this is a this story from a friend, I won't name his vineyards, but the nearest fire was 300 miles away. And it was, seemed like it was light smoke and it's a destroyed vintage in 2020. Yet, you know, a, a vineyard in Santa Cruz mountains that I am, um, making wine for is, you know, right in the swirl of that horrible fire there and which wiped out actual vineyards and houses and wineries. Um, and this, this smoke was thick for oh, four days and harvested prematurely knowing like it's going to be, that one's fine. Um, Carneros, our Pinot Noir, two or three weeks of heavy smoke and it tastes fine. And, it, and Alex and Peter and Arpad and all of us look at each other and say, why, why is this? And you look at the numbers and try to correlate that, but clearly we're missing the critical part of the puzzle and we're all working on figuring that out. And of course, people are working on figuring out how to remediate tainted wine and that's a bit of a suspicious um, effort. And so when do you uh, pick the Cabernet Sauvignon on the Obsidian Ridge vineyard? If you risk another week or day or three days, you'll you'll be into the sugar winds. <laughs> you know, the humidity drops to 5%, the temperature goes up to 105. And, and then you're, you're instantly good dealing with a quarter or the drop in tonnage by a quarter, uh, just to evaporation. And it's no fun making that vintage, you can still taste it like the trauma of, of 2000, 2007. Yeah, that was when we were really hit by that. With the irrigation up there and the 
the application and the, the way that we've approached it, we have a, by ourselves a little bit of time, but we're not afraid of, we, we're not, we're not trying to maximize that anymore. We are under the comp point pre presumption of confidence that the years of which we've been doing this, that simply waiting another day is not going to make that difference. Often, I think as winemakers, we, we presume that we have this final touch on the beautiful results by choosing tomorrow versus today to pick the grapes. And that's a, a pretension that eludes us at least. And we, we, um, we looked at the 230 acres of, of vines that are up there now and understand that the range works well. And it's interesting things happened too in 2011 being the wetter, cooler of the years, uh, making a wine that we, we long since wish we hadn't sold out every bottle because it turned out better than the 2010 vintage, uh, which was more moderate. Um, and then a frost event in 2017 took all the leaves off of the vines before we had harvested. And we scrambled to get that in. It wasn't a frost event, it was a freeze event. <laughs> the leaves disappeared. And I can taste, you can taste that. There's something that's almost like Malvasia. There's like a lime peel in that wine, which doesn't belong in Cabernet, but it's there. And it's again, telling the story of that on the fringe, it's either fire or freeze. Um, fortunately, the slopes of that vineyard allow for the cold air to drain off rather than accumulate and, and ruin a vintage from the beginning. So we're not dealing with that issue as much as more at the end season, whether it's going to be frozen off or um, or fired off. <laughs> Listening to you speak about the um, the vineyard, so you've been doing this for twenty years now on this property, more or less, and it sounds like you've it's been a continual learning experience about learning about the vineyard and the soil and the types of wine that it produces and that you have to adapt to what the land is, is telling you in essence. So I have the 2017 Obsidian Ridge um, in front of me. I think you've touched on this on this kind of the tannic structure, but do you get, what kind of sense of place do you get when tasting the wine? Why is this distinct just in the taste, in the wine itself? I can smell characters that relate to the the place, as I mentioned, the garig, if you will, of of uh, manzanita and the pines, just that feel, that alpine feel that you don't get at lower elevations. It relates a lot to that same experience as you go up into the Sierras. It's about elevation and, and that red soil, that iron rich soil surely plays a role. I, I do not understand yet, <laughs> hopefully continue to learn, but I do not understand yet what it is about a soil that comes through in the flavor of a wine, other than simply the mechanics of drainage, uh, you know, the stress that a vine endures due to well-drained soils versus wet, heavier valley floor soils. That's a mechanical issue to me, rather than I can taste the iron flavor of the red soils. But we do know that iron carries out into the grape and into the wine and it has potentially a huge impact on how things play out for um for the for the the quality of the mouthfeel um that being said on the aroma side the texture side is is just it's something we have decided to embrace rather than tame there are so many products out there that we can apply to the taming of the tannins we have chosen to go down the path of using the more 
fundamental dials, if you will, of temperature and duration of maceration rather than additives. But rather than saying, look, we're going to imitate the wonderful textural qualities of a $200 Napa Cabernet, we're embracing the difference of this place. We're not pursuing that suppleness that I think Napa has become well-established at being um, capable of appreciating. I think the tannic structure is really important, especially with Cabernet, um, but it's really quite fine and powdery, the tannins, and not as... I find with Napa that the tannins can be, and maybe that's winemaking as much as anything, can be quite aggressive, especially when the wine's young. But this one has just that nice fineness and just adds to that kind of smooth mouthfeel, giving the wine structure but not dominating. And it's actually quite a nice texture to the wine. It's not as fruity as I was expecting. I've tasted previous vintages of this wine, and I was expecting a bit more oomph and fruit to it, but it's actually very balanced, very restrained, very quite elegant, I think. That wasn't what I was expecting, Matthew. I think of um, <laughs> uh, I think of the wine when it's in barrel and, and, and in bottle as being monstrously tannic um, and aggressive. And we, as I said, have pulled back on the the dials of temperature and, and time, maceration time to, to mitigate that to some degree. But you're drinking the 2017, so it's been in bottle for two years, um, well, three years, and and beginning to work its work its magic in there. It is Cabernet Sauvignon, and I'm not saying it tastes like uh, climate Pinot Noir or anything like that, but it's the, the tannins aren't that really full, mm -hmm. full on kind of attacking your palate. So there's a, a really nice smoothness to them, mm -hmm. which give the wine structure and make the wine quite elegant. I'm, I'm delighted to hear that. I think that I often the winemaker is the worst person to ask about a vintage because, you know, you remember the trauma of harvest and forever are thinking of that rather than what's in front of you. And, um, and 17 was a, was a beautiful year for us. Uh, and I'm glad to hear that it's refined rather than, than top heavy or and it's, it is interesting. I think just going back to Lake County, I think, as you mentioned, one of the selling points for Lake County is that it's right next to Napa. So therefore it's like Napa, but it's, it's cheaper. But I think what you're saying is that it's got much more of an identity now. There are more wineries, there are more grape growers going into Lake County and working with it, partly because the land is cheaper and it's net, people need access to cheaper grapes. But at the same time, learning about the identity of the region and the different vineyards and the different sub-regions. And this is, it is like Napa, but it's different. Higher much higher elevation, I think is the really important thing here. It can be, I mean, down by the lake shore, it's certainly not um, uh, the same thing as up in the higher parts of Red Hills. Right, so we're talking about different areas of Lake County having different climactic and elevation influences. But I think with this particular wine, the elevation is all important. And it's interesting you mentioned that the soil, you don't think that the soil gives taste to a wine, which I agree with, but it certainly influences how the vine grows and how the berries grow and what the wine is going to taste like. So that drainage, as you mentioned, all important. So you don't get this ripe opulence that you would get in a more fertile soil, for instance. I think the other big thing that influences where we've gone with this wine is that, you know, we have pursued the higher end of the price range, which is, you know, proxy for quality, partly because we have this site that seems to want to make a, 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 
a serious wine. And we've honored that rather than going down the path of what is the county's average price and pursuing that commodity type farming. And just to stand there and see the geology arrayed in front of you of Mount Kanaktai and the volcanic domes and understanding how physically present the tectonics of Northern California are right there. There's a magma pocket right below Obsidian Ridge that's some 30 miles in diameter and 10 miles deep, a cylinder, and it's less than two miles below where you're standing. It's the thinnest part of the crust in all of North America. It's like thinking about what's underneath you if you're swimming in the middle of the ocean, thinking about that presence of nature and honoring that with a serious effort to make a great wine has always been our pursuit. And yet the economics of Napa Valley being as they are dictates this pursuit of quality inevitably, uh, whereas Lake County and its inability to command that reputational price or the benefit of, re of uh, reputation that has on price, you know, you have a choice to make. And we, we've chosen that path to, to, to explore what the characteristics of this vineyard are at the highest end, which by and large is not going to be $200 wine, it's going to be $30 wine, um, but feel very, very good about having made that path, that choice. It, it is a special place. And you also make a wine called Half Mile. Yeah, so Half Mile, uh, that began with H-Block, the very top of Obsidian Ridge, where we had planted some Petit Verdot. And um, Petit Verdot is sort of a, uh, a different beast altogether. It fails to conform to your um, trellising desires and sprawls all over the place and does its own thing. And of course, it has this great acidity and black, inky black pigment. Um, while we of course keep each block and each segment varietal segment in the block separate in the vinification and the barrel aging we noticed that petit Frodo, um was just so monolithic not interesting in its first year and first and second year and we ended up um keeping back a vintage i think it was the 2005 was our first one of that yeah and that was that was three years in barrel 100% new. I just had this wine two days ago, and it's it's lovely. Uh, pure Petit Verdot from 2005, aged for three years in barrel, and that monolithic presence begins to crack up and show layers and complexity after that time. Uh, Half Mile is no longer pure Petit Verdot. It's Cabernet-based, um, and it is... A reflection of that location there at the top of the vineyard at a half mile elevation. So of your high elevation vineyards, that's the most extreme and the most um, influenced by elevation. We really embrace it there and, and celebrate it. Well, the results are in the wine, which is uh, the all important thing. Uh, so thank you for sharing your story and how you've kind of had this 20 year conversation with the vineyard and always learning something from the vineyard. And hopefully the vineyard learns things from you as well as you as you farm it. Well, Matthew, great to talk to you. Thank you for um, the opportunity to tell people about Obsidian Ridge. Thank you.